This morning's first scripture reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapters 27 to 31. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and be weary, and the young will fall exhausted. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The word of the Lord. Once again this morning, we are uh, in the first chapter of Mark's Gospel. Last week, in that very first chapter, that chapter where Mark introduces Jesus to the world, you'll recall that Mark is the earliest Gospel to be written. Um, So the beginning of Mark is the first part of the very first Gospel, and in that very first chapter of Mark, Jesus tells the story of Jesus in the synagogue in his hometown, healing a man who had within him an unclean spirit. We talked about that last week. And the authority that the presence of God has over all that inside of us can, can all that's inside of us that can control our lives, drive us literally and certainly emotionally and figuratively to destruction. This morning, we're a little bit farther along in the first chapter of Mark. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to you and to the church. At once, his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered at the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And this is the beginning of what we in the biblical world call the Markan secret. Jesus in Mark, only in Mark, is in really serious about nobody saying or telling anybody else who he is until a certain point later in the gospel. So Jesus uh, warns the demons not to tell anyone about him. A leper came to him, begging him and kneeling. He said to Jesus, if you choose, make me clean, moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I do choose, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left the man and he was made clean. After sternly warning him not to say anything, Jesus sent him away at once, saying to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. 
But the man went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the word so that Jesus could, not, could no longer go into a town openly but stayed out in the country and people came to him from every quarter. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. May the meditations of our hearts upon your word to us today, O God, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Last week, Jesus encounters, Mark has him encounter immediately in the very first chapter uh, the inner powers that can control us and drive us to distraction or worse. Today, in these very few verses, this really economical and brilliant story that Mark writes for us, Jesus, uh, Mark shows us that the Son of God, that's what he calls Jesus in the very first verse of this chapter, the presence of God, in other words, um, in the real world, in real time, in your life, in my life, has authority not only over what hurts us on the inside, but also what hurts us, so to speak, on the outside, in our physical selves, in the real material world in which we live, in our real bodies, our real everyday lives and schedules, and sets of challenges that lie before us. Um, but according to this short text today, something has to happen for that authority to be exercised, for that healing to happen in our bodies, in our real lives. We have to, as these people have already done, already in this chapter, we have to make contact with Jesus, not just listen to words about him, really make contact, allow ourselves to be touched. Back when I was a pastor in Denver in the late 90s, um, and of course when you live out west you have to drive all over the place all the time to get anywhere, I remember a kind of funny sign that sat outside of a gas station right on the Colorado-Texas border. It was one of those portable advertising signs, you know, on a kind of a trailer, uh, black letters on a yellow background with uh, flashing lights on the top that are meant to lure in or draw the attention of passers-by. And at the top of this sign read, Last Chance Texas Lotto, Clean Restrooms, Snacks. And then at the bottom of the sign, off to the side, almost like an afterthought, um, Jesus is Lord. <laughs> so whatever you needed there at that gas station before you left Texas or left Colorado to go into the other state, you could get it. You could, uh, um, you know, get some gas. Um, you could uh, clean up if you needed to. Uh, you could play the lotto, do a little gambling, and of course you could also, I guess, give your life to Jesus. Maybe I shouldn't be too cynical about that because at least it was getting the brand out there. Uh, everybody who went from Colorado, Tex Colorado to Texas or the other way in that area saw that sign. And the truth is, Jesus especially out west, especially in this country, in the western world, Jesus, the name anyway, is everywhere. Lots of opportunities for contact, seems. We see Jesus all the time, right? Not just in the little fish things in the back of cars on the bumper, uh, that symbol, that early symbol of Christianity. 
People see Jesus in cloud formations. They see him, you know, in, in, in uh, well, there one lady I heard uh, saw Jesus' image in a potato chip. Guess what state she was from? <laughs> Good. No, uh, that's, I, I get the potato theme. Florida. If it's weird, it usually is Florida, and I lived there for five years, I know. Um, we also talk about, we see Jesus, we say Jesus a lot as a kid, and I'm not joking. When I was a little kid, I really thought that Jesus' middle initial was H. And then my dad, he doubled down and told us when we were little that the H probably stood for horn. He wasn't sure, but um, we thought that was pretty cool. My guess is that we see what we want to see and we hear what we want to hear for a reason. I think the reason is we all yearn to be touched by God, to be welcomed, embraced by God, by Jesus. The Christian faith holds to be God's very presence in our midst. I don't mean that everybody wants to be a Christian. I don't mean that. What I mean, and what these gospel texts show and they were really written before there really was a Christian church in any any sense of the way that we would understand that, is that our deepest yearning as human beings is to be welcomed and recognized and embraced by the God who is the source of us, our lives, our personalities, our destinies. So in our search, in our restless wandering and looking for something real, our eyes pick up patterns, we hear and we speak in rhythms that at least seem to reveal God's presence for us, that what, which we want so very much. And these little glimpses of Jesus in a potato chip or in a song or whatever it might be uh, give us hope in the midst of all the sort of random struggles of our lives. And here's the good news this morning, in this text, in the first chapter of Mark, right here at the start of his gospel, Mark wants to give you and me and all of humanity more than that, more than these little glimpses of hope. You see, it's not us that has to find Jesus in cloud patterns or in the, in the pantheon of all other religions that are out there in the smorgasbord that are, that's available to us. Um, it's not up to us to see him or hear him or invoke him for him to be here, for his presence to be here, for example, at this table, when it comes to you and me, Jesus will find us. Jesus is going to find you again and again, if you will let yourself be found. And even before you understand him and all that he signifies and means, He will touch you, and that touch will change you, will transform you and heal you one way or another. Will heal you and make you whole. We were with with a friend last night, Sarah and I, who was recently laid off from her very big job in her early 60s. It's a pretty common story. This very big company in a very significant position just downside. They did away with her position, and all of a sudden she's out of work. And she was saying how some of her friends were avoiding her now. Or if they were together, they talked about anything but the fact that she's out of work for the first time in her entire life. She's struggling 
with the sense of identity and purpose, and she's worried about money and all these things. Um, a lot of people don't know what to do when things don't go as planned, right? They don't know what to do when things go wrong. And so a lot of people, unfortunately, don't try. If I'm going through something tough, I don't want a friend who's going to avoid me when that's happening. Do you? Good friends stick, right? They may not know what to say, but they stick, literally, sometimes. I don't want a savior either who isn't going to be by my side and willing to grab hold of me when I am struggling, who's not afraid to touch me, no matter what I've done, to touch me and embrace me as I really am. A savior who touches lepers and sinners and failures and doubters and cheaters and procrastinators. In other words, human beings. That's who we have in Christ Jesus. A savior who gives out of love, love that is stronger than any judgment, that which every one of us needs most of all, which is the certainty that God sees us as we really are and loves us anyway, wants to be in a relationship what, with us. And that relationship is salvation. We don't have to wait for it at the end of our biological life when we go up, whatever, wherever that is. It starts now. It starts in this relationship which we are offered in Christ. And I love what Mark does here in the story. So just bear with me as we look at, just look at this short story uh, quickly because it is genius from a literary perspective. Jesus, as we've said, has moved from the synagogue, and now he is in the home of Peter himself, and apparently Peter's mother-in-law lives there. That is a close family. Uh, I love my mother-in-law, but no way. People ask me if my father lives with me, and I'm like, oh no, we love each other too much for that. And I have been to Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, and they have excavated these fishermen's homes and they are tiny. They're about as big as that piano, maybe a little larger. Families lived in these tight spaces. So get this image now, right? As soon as they left the synagogue, if we read closely here, uh, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So according to my math, that's at least five burly, stinky guys who've now busted into this home expecting this woman to feed them. Now, I probably wouldn't have given this illustration early on in my time with you, but the image that I think captures the feel of this scene, and that's the problem with the way we read the Bible. We skip over the emotions and the setting and the lighting and the characters, and we, and we just don't read it like we read other, other pieces of literature, but we should. The scene that is most like this to me happened in the movie that should have won the Oscar, by Martin, directed by Martin Scorsese, Goodfellas, right? Now, there are lots of differences in this scene, but Joe Pesci, Robert De Niro, and Ray Liotta, may he rest in peace, recently passed away, have just whacked a guy, another made guy. They're kind of got a little blood on him, and the body, which they think is dead, is in the trunk of their car, and on the way home, they stop off at Joe Pesci's mother's house. You know the scene? played by the real mother of Martin Scorsese, Italian mom. She's no great actress, but she does a pretty good job of feeding them, which is what you do in Italian culture 
to show love. It's a love language, right? So that's exactly what is going on here. Skip the murdering part. But you have these big, who just kind of pile in. My friends and I used to pile into our kitchen. My mother's like, okay, let's get some sandwiches out. That's, that's what's going on here, right? But Peter's mother-in-law, who would normally be playing hostess, especially in Middle Eastern culture, is nowhere to be found. She's in the back room, so to speak, because she has a fever. And they tell Jesus about this. She cannot offer them hospitality. She can't give them that love language. And remember that in Judaism, touch is a very powerful medium. You do not touch anything that is impure or not of God or sick. There's all kinds of rituals in order to make sure that we stay pure and in an unadulterated relationship with God. She is sick. She's in the back room. They tell Jesus about it. And he goes to her, right? Read the text carefully. And then don't miss it. He takes her by the hand and he lifts her up. He doesn't say a word. He just touches her. This is something new Mark is telling the world about. Normally, even in Jewish tradition, certainly in the first chapter of Genesis, it is speech that creates life and hope, right? Let there be light, and there was light, etc., etc. Here, it is silence and touch, a lot more like the creation story in chapter 2 of Genesis, written from a different perspective, right? More of an agricultural perspective. Jesus I mean, God takes some dirt, spits in it, and molds a human being, Adam, out of the earth, out of this tactile um, creation comes humanity. He came to her. She didn't have to come to him. She had to find him. He came to her, took her by the hand, touched her, and lifted her up, lifted her into healing and hope. And going back into the sort of, sort of ancient uh, patriarchal culture, she immediately started serving them. She got the sandwiches on the table, apparently. And that evening, as the sunset uh, hit, all the Jewish neighbors who, were, who couldn't really do this during the Sabbath, they crowd around the front door of this house. A mob appears. Mark says, the whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many. In the Gospel of Mark, there are ten consecutive stories that tell about Jesus healing people. This is what he does. He changes things for us in a way that no one, nothing else can if we let it happen. I like a story that the uh, famous evangelical Tony Campolo tells. The story is set in heaven, whatever that is, wherever that is. St. Peter, of course, handles admissions at the pearly gates, and the Apostle Paul, in this story, is sort of the administrator of the celestial kingdom, taking a regular monthly census of heaven's inhabitants. But something doesn't add up. Every time Paul counts up the number of people who are in heaven, his number far exceeds the number of admittances that Peter has registered at the front gate. The books don't balance. So Paul runs up to Peter and sort of demands, Peter, Peter, what's going on? And Peter says he doesn't know. So Paul goes back and thinks some more. And then all of a sudden, Paul runs up to Peter and says, I figured it out. I figured it out. I know why our numbers don't match. I figured out why there are so many more people in heaven 
than you're letting in at the pearly gates. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He keeps sneaking people over the wall. Now, I'm not a big heaven guy. Uh, when I was a kid in the, in the more conservative, born-again world, heaven and hell were weaponized sort of against us. I felt I didn't like it. And then as I thought about it, it didn't really make a lot of sense. Again, as I say, for me, salvation is relationship with God. That's all it is, and it is eternal. It's stronger even than death. And it starts right now. The word of God today is that Jesus offers unlimited grace to anybody who will simply let themselves be touched by him. You may say, as I do about myself, I don't deserve grace. That's okay. It's not about us, really. It's not about my qualifications or yours. It's about this quiet presence in our lives that is willing to be with us no matter what, no matter where, and to touch us and to reassure us again and again and again that we are seen, we are loved, that we are precious in God's sight. That is all that grace is. It is unmerited love. So no wonder people see Jesus' name on signs for clean restrooms and the Texas lotto out in the middle of nowhere. No wonder people see Jesus in potato chips and cloud formations. Everyone deep down wants what only he can provide, simply the gift of God's presence, unearned, unmerited, just love-driven. Everybody wants to be touched like that. And I'm just going to end with a quick story about when I first went to seminary, 1988. The AIDS epidemic was still rampant, especially in New York City. Um, a woman in my class seminary who'd been an actress, and she has been now, I think, for over 25 years, the chaplain at Princeton University. She was the star of our class, and she really deserved that uh, title. Uh, her name is Allison Bowden, which is amazing, uh, uh, a UCC pastor. But she and I became friends, and she invited me a couple of times to go with her to Harlem Hospital, where we, she, on a regular basis, simply held little babies who had AIDS, little babies who were not going to make it. All of them, every one of them in that time, did not survive. And you simply sat with these little human beings, these little miracles of God's creation, and you held them, and you rocked. And Allison's white, I'm white, almost all of the volunteers at Harlem Hospital back in those days to hold, and back in those days, people didn't touch people with AIDS. You remember? Right? Because it could threaten you. So, at the time, it was a bit of a risk to go ahead and do this, but, but for them, and I got to see this and experience it a little myself, uh, most of the volunteers were grandmothers from Harlem who had their kids and their grandkids already in their apartments, and they took the time to come and sit with those babies, and for the time that those babies were on this earth, they could feel touch and feel the kind of love that cannot just be spoken, it's got to be felt. That is what works for human beings. That's what works for you, for me. Um, 
And that's why we celebrate this sacrament, not just to remember, but to let ourselves be touched, to smell, see, feel the bread, the juice, his presence, his love. We call the Lord's Supper communion, and we also call it, as all Christian traditions do, the Eucharist. Eucharist comes from the Latin word for thanksgiving, for love. May it be so.